Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. At Stenge Law Firm, we represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stenge Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stenge Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stenge, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 474, Southward Ho, part 3. So, the last few weeks have been about the process by which Japan became the ruling power in Micronesia. This week will be all about the nature of Japanese empire in the region, what was Micronesia like under Japanese rule. From what I've seen, the nature of the Japanese Empire in Micronesia was defined by two questions, both of which were central to the Nanyocho, or South Sea's office, the colonial government of the region, but neither of which was ever answered satisfactorily. First was the complex question of what relationship Micronesians now had to the Japanese state. They were, in a sense, subjects of the empire and the League of Nations mandate in the region both charged Japan to modernize Micronesian life, whatever that meant, and to include Micronesians fully under the laws of Japan itself. And yet, the Nanyocho always maintained the Japanese constitution did not apply in Micronesia due to the area's status as a League of Nations mandate and functionally operated as an appointed dictatorship in the region. As for the Micronesians themselves, Japanese bureaucrats in all their writings about the region never seem to have fully accepted the Micronesians as part of the empire. Japan's colonial policy was always a bit of a mishmash of ideas. On the one hand was the rhetoric of pan-Asian unity and in Korea and Taiwan of shared Confucian culture and the shared benevolence of the Japanese sovereign. On the other was a strong sense of Japanese cultural particularism and chauvinism that in this mindset gave Japan the right to lift up other Asians, even against their will. In Micronesia, this clashing of ideas was even more acute, because the rhetoric of shared culture didn't even apply. Instead, Japanese leaders in the region seem to have accepted the idea of Micronesian racial inferiority as simply a default reality and designed policy around that idea. On the surface, the rhetoric of imperial benevolence and uplift never vanished. But in practice, Micronesians were often second or even third-class citizens in their own land. The other question was what the hell Japan was even doing in Micronesia itself. Japanese interest in the region had initially been driven by overblown economic promises of the riches of the area, as well as notions of the threat it presented as a strategic base of operations against Japan itself. It was for that latter reason that the more aggressive leaders of the Imperial Japanese Navy had pushed so hard during World War I for Japan to occupy the islands, 
But in the final settlements after the war, Japan was forced to agree to a demilitarized presence in order to get its mandate recognized. By the mid-1920s, the only Imperial Navy presence in the region was a single liaison officer attached to the Nanyocho, whose sole responsibility was updating purely theoretical plans for how the islands might be used in a war emergency. And while the islands were strategically located, among other things, some of the closest anchorages to the Japanese mainland in the Asian Pacific, and lying smack between American-controlled Hawaii and the American outpost on the Philippines, by the standards of 1920s militaries, the islands themselves were actually not great bases. Your ideal 1920s island naval fortress has deep protected harbors that can accommodate very large warships, of course, and protect them from the ravages of the open ocean. But outside of those harbors, the island also needed to be mountainous, rough terrain, the idea being that said terrain could easily be fortified with lots of coastal guns that could then fire freely on enemy fleets passing by, while also being protected from counterfire by the rocky terrain. That would also make said defenses very difficult to storm. Unfortunately for the Imperial Navy, most of the islands of Micronesia did not fit this bill. Their harbors were too small and needed expansion, or in most cases, they were simply too flat and impossible to fortify. Only one atoll in the entire region actually fit the bill. This was the Truck Atoll in the Carolines, as it was called. That's actually a corruption of the native pronunciation, Chuk. I'm going to continue to use Truck simply because that's what most period sources used, and it's what you're most likely to encounter if you research this time period. The other islands in the region could have been brought up to speed with expensive fortifications, except that Japan was now banned by treaty from actually building those forts in Micronesia, so what's the point of being here again? Was Micronesia supposed to be an economic powerhouse for the empire, a strategic outpost, a dumping ground for the growing population of the main islands? Nobody was quite sure, and so policy in the region was always a bit of a mess. So far I'm speaking pretty generally, though. What did this mean in terms of practical policy for the daily lives of the Micronesian population? To get into specifics, we're going to divide things into three different spheres of life. Education, economics, and broader social life. So first, let's talk education. And I think it's a good idea to start here because, to use the words of the scholar Mark Petey in his study of Japanese Micronesia, quote, No Japanese policy more clearly illustrated the contradictions between Japanese self-interest and Japan's obligations under its mandate than the education programs which the Nanyocho made available to Micronesians. Intended to be a showpiece to demonstrate Japan's commitment to its mandate obligations, they also served as a means to perpetuate Japanese rule and keep the indigenous population in a state of perpetual dependence. Now that's one hell of a strong statement, but honestly, I think it's pretty immediately clear that he is right. For a quick refresh, in Japan proper at this time, there were eight years of mandatory primary education. After the Second World War, that was expanded to nine. In Micronesia, the Kogako, or public schools run by the Nanyocho, with the help of the education ministry, offered only three years of primary education, supplemented by two more for students who showed particular aptitude. On the larger islands, or those closer to Japan itself, particularly the Marianas, all school-aged Micronesians were required to attend. 
Chiefs from the more remote atolls were given quotas of the number of students they could send to the nearest school. Students enrolled in this way had to board at their own expense with friends or family in the area. The vast, vast, vast majority of time in this mandatory education curriculum was devoted to the study of the Japanese language, more than half of the school day on average. Despite this, given the vast differences between Micronesian languages and Japanese, they aren't even in the same language family, very few Micronesians were able to read or write Japanese. Even if you were selected for the special five-year instruction program, you probably would not make it beyond the basic phonetic kana syllabary and some very basic kanji. Based on what I've seen of the curriculum, it's more or less where you'd be at after taking slightly less than a semester of college-level Japanese, if that. At the same time, these kids were forbidden from learning their indigenous languages in school, or indeed even using them on the premises, and Japanese education being what it was at the time, were often publicly beaten if they spoke their native tongue instead of Japanese at school. Combined with a minimal history and geography education, which focused solely on Japan, the net effect was the creation of a generation of young people cut off, in essence, from their own culture. What time was not given over to language education was mostly directed towards what pre-war education bureaucrats euphemistically called doutoku, or morals. But this was not morals or ethics in the sense you think of it. This is, in essence, propaganda class, where students learn all about the greatness of Japan's emperor and their obligation to serve him. These sort of classes, which would involve hagiographic biographies of famous figures who died for the nation, or the recitation of poems enjoining loyalty to the emperor and his state, existed on the Japanese mainland as well, at least until the post-1945 educational reforms. But on the mainland, given the much longer education curriculum, there was more, well, actual learning sprinkled in there. The Micronesian schools, by comparison, were overwhelmingly focused on what might be called education for subordination. Courses that were clearly aimed at making Micronesians obedient to the state and useful to the Japanese, but not allowing them to aspire to anything beyond that. That's not to say there weren't better schools in Micronesia. The Nanyocho also ran a school system for the children of Japanese immigrants, about whom more in a bit, that was virtually identical to the one back in mainland Japan, but the two systems were functionally totally segregated. Education bureaucrats did not ever allow Micronesians to enroll in the mainland schools on the grounds that Micronesian kids simply didn't have the Japanese language skills necessary to succeed. Which, to be fair, in isolation is true. But there are ways to support students in situations like that. The Nanyocho bureaucracy simply wasn't interested in doing it. Very rarely, Micronesian students who were particularly promising were given permission to travel to mainland Japan for continuing their education after completing their mandatory schooling, but once they got to Japan, they were similarly totally unsupported in terms of language not to mention the cultural challenges inherent to any long-term study abroad program. As a result, pretty much all the students so selected eventually dropped out. Beyond these rare opportunities, the only other chance for continuing education for Micronesians during Japanese rule was a vocational school established on Palau in 1926 to train apprentices for careers in carpentry, 
eventually blacksmithing, electronics, and automobile repair were added to the career tracks. And that was literally it. David Ramarui, who would eventually go on to become a civil servant and senator in the government of Palau after the Second World War, would later recall his education under Japanese rule. Specifically, he recalled seeing the difference between Palau's two schools. One, for Japanese children, had a statue of the late Edo thinker Ninomiya Sontoku as a schoolboy, carrying wood on his back while reading a book. It was a symbol of diligence, of course, but also of the potential of learning to unlock your own abilities. After all, Ninomiya Sontoku had gone from the simple son of peasants to one of the most respected thinkers of his time, thanks solely to his education. The other school, his school as an indigenous Palauan, also had a statue in front of it, but it was far simpler, bearing four inscribed kanji for diligence, honesty, obedience, and faithfulness. It was a simple reminder to conform, without the promise that learning could offer anything else. Frankly, I think that sums up the whole topic pretty well. Nor do things look much better when we look at the economic picture. Early on, Japan's economic interest in Micronesia was limited. After all, the Japanese move into the region had been based on security interests rather than economic ones. The only substantial economic policy enacted in those early years of Japanese rule was a ban on non-Japanese ships entering more than a few open harbors, most of which were in the Marianas, where the Japanese presence was at its strongest. That ban was intended not as a security measure, but as an economic one, to give the Japanese firm Nanyoboeki, the South Seas Trading Company, a monopoly on shipping in the islands. It did not apply, by the way, to transit through Micronesia. Ships could move through the region freely as long as they didn't stop at a Japanese-run port outside of the open ones without permission. But other than this heavy-handed approach to setting up an economic monopoly in the area, which helped Nanyoboeki to be sure, but didn't make the company rich, there wasn't a lot of thought given to the regional economy. Which is not unsurprising. Remember, a lot of the folks staffing the Nanyocho are home ministry bureaucrats from Japan, alongside a small number of education ministry types. In other words, they were more concerned with laws and regulation than with dollars and cents, or yen and sen, I guess. So, without much in the way of intervention from the Nanyocho, the economy of the region continued as it had under German rule. Nanyoboeki and a host of smaller companies ran operations on individual islands, selling consumer goods from Japan and buying resources, mostly fish and copra from coconuts, to ship back to the mainland. Copra in particular became a major cash crop because of its industrial uses, with many Micronesian communities setting up large-scale copra farms to sell to the Japanese. But all of this began to change in 1920, with the arrival in the region of one Matsue Haruji. Matsue, born in 1876 in Fukushima, was already an established man in Japan's economy by 1920. He'd begun his career employed by a Japanese sugar company, and in 1903 received a government scholarship to go study sugarcane cultivation in Louisiana. Eventually he found his way to Taiwan, where he became involved in efforts to cultivate sugarcane on those islands. And in 1920, he made his way to Micronesia on the hunch that the even warmer subtropical climate of the region would be better for sugar than Taiwan. 
And it turned out that he was right. By 1921, he'd secured funding to found the Nanyo Kohatskaisha, or South Seas Development Corporation, and began clearing space on the Marianas Islands, the farthest north chain of Micronesia outside of the uninhabited Bonins, for sugar plantation. And sugar cultivation, in turn, made Nanyo Kohatsu and Matsue absolutely rich. I won't go too deep into the details here, but Matsue was absolutely right that sugarcane would do well as a cash crop in the region. But the thing about cane cultivation is that it's hugely labor-intensive, not to mention dangerous, and when industrially produced, requires huge sugarcane fields. To solve these problems, and with the collaboration of the Nanyocho government, Matsue began to buy up land in the Marianas and to bring cane farmers from other parts of the empire. He and the Nanyo bureaucrats assumed that Micronesians could not handle this highly technical practice of sugar cultivation. Specifically, Matsue brought in Japanese managers alongside large numbers of Korean and Okinawan workers. He also began buying up land in the Marianas en masse, aided by new land registration laws put in place by the Nanyocho. Those land registration laws attempted to formalize land tenure and ownership, something the Germans and Spanish had never really bothered with. The new system was hugely weighted towards Japanese looking to purchase land in the area. Any land not clearly owned by someone else was handed over to the Nanyocho to sell as they saw fit, and ownership was defined very narrowly. Common land used for hunting or fishing was treated as unoccupied, for example. This resulted in some truly horrifying bureaucratic decisions, such as a Nanyo bureaucrat on the Nomoi Islands who decided that all land between the high and low tide marks was unoccupied and thus state property, and banned fishing on them, closing off a key part of the local subsistence economy. Decisions around land tenure were made and recorded in Japanese and could only be appealed in that language, which most Micronesians had minimal facility with, even those educated in the colonial system. Small wonder that Matsue and his company had little trouble buying up huge swaths of the Marianas. The result was an astounding demographic transformation of the Marianas. From 1928, the population of non-Micronesian Japanese subjects on the islands absolutely ballooned. By 1938, Palau was three-fourths non-Micronesian in its population. Saipan, an ideal setting for sugarcane cultivation, where basically everything that wasn't a mountain had been converted into cane fields, was over 90% non-Micronesian, having gone from around 2,000 non-Micronesian inhabitants in 1920 to 45,000 18 years later. By comparison, there were about 3,000 indigenous inhabitants from the Chamorro people left on the island by the mid-30s. Tinian, just to the south, had an extremely small indigenous population that was displaced completely by the mid-30s to make room for sugarcane fields. The vast majority of the workers brought in during these early years were either poor rural Japanese or Okinawans and Koreans. They'd been promised work by Nanyo Kohatsu either as tenant farmers or employees of the organization itself, and on very favorable terms. Nanyo Kohatsu would take 12% of the yearly sugar crop and buy the rest at a predetermined price, meaning the value was not subject to market fluctuations. During bad harvest years, that initial 12% was just straight up waived. 
Employees, meanwhile, worked under predetermined and public pay scales that were competitive for the admittedly low standards of poor rural Japan, and very good for economically marginalized Korean and Okinawan communities. Simply put, the terms offered to non-Micronesian workers were very good. It's not surprising, many people took them. The Marianas, being the closest of the inhabited island chains to Japan proper, were the main site of immigration, again, primarily Korean and Okinawan workers, brought in for industrial agriculture. Other islands saw an influx of Japanese nationals who came in search of jobs. Ponape in the Carolines was about 25% non-Micronesian by 1938, just to give one example. However, the Marianas was far and away the most heavily affected location. The net effect on Micronesia's overall population was incredible. Thanks again primarily to movement into the Marianas, by 1938 Micronesia as a region was majority non-Micronesian in its inhabitants. Just over half were Korean, Okinawan, or mainland Japanese. Micronesian inhabitants who lived in areas targeted for economic exploitation by Japan were forced to relocate to new lands, reservations in essence that had been set aside for them. For example, the island of Rota in the North Marianas was targeted by Nanyo Kohatsu for development into sugarcane fields in 1929. As the Japanese population swelled, the island's only major town, called Rota Town, proved unable to hold the expanding population numbers. And so, one day in 1936, all Micronesian residents were gathered in the center of town by police and told they were being relocated to a new village given the Japanese name of Tatacho, a few miles north. Their homes were then redistributed to make room for even more Japanese laborers, eventually more or less swamping the numbers of the native Chamorro. It's a bit of a tangent, but part of the reason this happened was a stagnation of Micronesian population growth in general. The isolated islands had been ravaged by disease during the mid-19th century, brought to the region by Europeans, as had happened in basically every other isolated population outside of Eurasia the first time they encountered European seafarers. Turns out that smallpox is a hell of a disease if you have nobody in your population with a pre-existing immunity to it. But disease was not the only issue. Those land tenure rules I talked about dislocated many Micronesian communities which in turn destroyed the community and extended support networks of family relied on for things like childcare. At the same time, the drafting of Micronesians to do public works labor, a common practice any time the Nanyocho needed anything built since it didn't have much in the way of mechanized construction gear, resulted in malnutrition, which is not great for population growth. All of this meant that Micronesian population growth largely stagnated under Japanese rule, and that in turn just made it all the easier to bring in Japanese tenant farmers. By the mid-30s, the demographic shift had taken on a more permanent tone, as the Nanyocho and Nanyo Kohatsu began to shift policies once again. In the past, nearly all workers brought over to Micronesia had been men sent there to do some kind of physical labor, largely following the age-old pattern of dekasegi, or work away from home. That's to say, these laborers would come to Micronesia, work for a few years to make money, and then usually use that money to return home. In the interim, they would sometimes take Micronesians as spouses, and there were more than a few brothels, especially in the Marianas, 
with Chamorro women catering to the interests of foreign men. However, it is worth noting, and says a lot about the idea of Micronesian integration into the Japanese Empire, that even though there were very few Japanese women even in the area, there were substantial informal and sometimes outright legal bans on Japanese women having relations with Micronesian men. In the early 30s, though, the Nanyocho began subsidizing family immigration in the hopes of getting more women from Japan onto the islands. The policy paid dividends. In the early 20s, the male-female ratio among non-Micronesians was 5 to 1. By the mid-30s, it was 3 to 2. More women in the area, of course, meant more Japanese kids, which would further expand the Japanese population and possibly result in more Japanese nationals staying in Micronesia longer. And so the marginalization of Micronesians in their own homeland continued. There's really no reason to think that had World War II not abruptly ended Japanese rule in the area, this trend would not have continued. Even fishing, long a part of Micronesian economies, was dominated by outside labor by the mid-30s. Micronesia was particularly suited to the production of katsuobushi, a sort of dried fish flake made from bonito that forms the basis of dashi, a base that is core to Japanese cooking in the way that vegetable chicken and beef stock is to European cuisine. Producing katsuobushi is extremely labor-intensive and requires a lot of expertise, particularly in the early 20th century when the process was just beginning to be mechanized. Local Micronesians proved unable to ward off large Japanese businesses like Nanyo Kohatsu, which set up its own fishing subsidiary and imported, you guessed it, even more Korean and Okinawan workers to manage their large industrial fishing ships. Where Micronesians were offered employment by the Japanese businesses operating under the auspices of the Nanyocho, it was almost always in dirty and dangerous work. For example, Palau is home to substantial phosphate deposits, the mining rights for which were a major cash cow for the Nanyocho. The businesses given contracts to mine there employed large numbers of Micronesians from all over the region, most voluntarily, but some having been essentially dragooned into the work. Conditions in the mines were terrible. Long shifts and deadly hazards within the mine shafts were the norm. The workers were subject to other abuses as well. The first company to get a mining contract from the Nanyocho had it abruptly terminated within a year when it was discovered they'd been paying the workers not in cash, but in worthless IOUs that had no money backing them. Together, these three products, sugar, phosphate, and katsuobushi, formed the backbone of Micronesian exports to Japan. And remember, due to the policies set by the government back in Tokyo, the colony was not allowed to trade with any nation outside of Japan proper. Sugar was far and away the king. It accounted for more than 50% of exports by value in 1938. Katsuobushi and phosphate together were another quarter. Of these three, which together again represented about three quarters of the entire regional economy, Micronesians themselves only ever really saw profits from the phosphate industry, and only under exploitative and dangerous conditions. And there was a lot of profit to be made, make no mistake. In the early 1920s, the Nanyocho was more or less permanently in the red, with the bulk of its revenue coming from subsidies sent by Tokyo to prop the colonial government up. 
By the mid-30s, the Nanyo region was turning a substantial profit, and the Nanyo Cho itself had 3 million yen worth of reserves in its back pocket. The sugar industry alone had grown from about 4 million yen of exports in 1927 to 19.5 million 10 years later. But again, basically none of that money was coming back to Micronesians themselves. Much like the land, which now housed more colonists than native people, the economic benefits of industrialization were accruing far more to the colonizers than the colonized. Finally, and at long last, we have social policy, and this is a tricky one to talk about, because in many ways the Nanyocho never had a coherent social policy towards the Micronesians themselves. Simply put, bureaucrats sent from Tokyo didn't really know what they even wanted Micronesians to be. On the one hand, these bureaucrats would often try to follow a template from the systems of social control implemented on the Japanese mainland. We've already seen this in the form of the ethics classes offered in colonial schools where the ethics in question were less what is right and wrong and more is the emperor a great ruler or is he the greatest ruler. Conveniently, unlike the former question, the latter does at least have an easy-to-guess right answer if you don't want your teacher to hit you. Nor was the education system the only place where these attempts to mold Micronesians into good subjects in the manner of mainland education took place. For example, Nanyo bureaucrats made a concerted but largely totally ineffective effort to extend the state-backed system of Shinto shrines into Micronesia. In Japan, state control of Shinto was a fraught and complicated thing. Even the term Shinto was coined in the early Meiji period, which is why you see some historians who are hesitant to use that term to refer to practices from earlier periods. In Japan itself, there was a whole complex web of government bureaucracy navigating the exciting world of the old shrines and their traditional privileges, figuring out a delicate balance of updating practices to be more modern, like constructing a Shinto wedding ceremony modeled on church weddings, while maintaining a sense of antiquity, all of this being bound up, of course, in complicated notions of the divinity of the imperial line, which had grounded its own legitimacy in Shinto mythology. But honestly, these tangled webs don't really matter in Micronesia, because Shinto was fundamentally a practice with zero roots in the region, and as a result never really found any kind of footing among the Micronesian population. The Nanyocho went through the motions well enough, constructing a network of shrines across the entirety of Micronesia. The centerpiece was the Nanyo Jinja or South The centerpiece was the Nanyo Jinja or South Seas Shrine, built in the city of Koror in Palau, the same place as the administrative headquarters of the Nanyocho. Established in an elaborate ceremony lasting over three days in November 1940, the shrine was dedicated to the veneration of Amaterasu, the sun goddess and progenitor of the Japanese imperial line. It was intended to serve as the highest-ranking shrine in Micronesia, a parallel to Koror's own role as the center of Japanese administration in the region. The intended message, it has to be said, was not subtle. But even here, there were signs of the ambiguity that Nanyocho bureaucrats always had towards their Micronesian charges. There was always a lingering sense that Micronesians could never really assimilate, and honestly, Shinto is such a uniquely Japanese thing that it's hard to see it having much appeal, even without the specific context of it being forced on the locals at gunpoint. 
Micronesian kids learned the basics in school. How to bow at the Tory gates, wash your hands, give offerings, all that good stuff, and turned out for celebrations of the shrine Matsuri, the festivals where the Makoshi, or portable shrine, was carried around the area to bless it. In some cases, like the shrine on the Yap Islands in the Carolines, Micronesians were even encouraged to participate directly in these proceedings. More impactfully, they found their options for other religions reduced. In the mid-30s, the Nanyocho began to clamp down on and then ban Christian missionaries who'd been operating in the region since Spanish days, and had set up parochial schools all over the area. Previously, they had been tolerated under the guise of enlightened rule, but really to avoid pissing off the West, but the Christian faith came under increasing attack in Micronesia as contradictory to patriotic Japanese spirit. But all these changes were pretty obviously superficial. Rather unsurprisingly, once the Nanyocho collapsed, so did any interest among the locals in Shinto. You don't exactly see practitioners of it running around today in Micronesia. That Nanyo shrine in Koror? Most of it was torn down after the war for construction materials to help rebuild the city after Allied bombing raids. Somewhat more effective was the attempt to construct pro-Japanese youth groups called Seinendan, roughly Young Men's Associations. Particularly in areas with a heavier Japanese presence, Micronesian Seinendan began to spring up, organized by colonial bureaucrats for the purposes of Kolminka, roughly the creation of imperial subjects. And these were a bit more effective than attempts at compulsory state Shinto participation were, for reasons that are frankly pretty obvious in hindsight. Young men who joined the Seinendan got spiffy uniforms and got to march around looking fancy in them. They had social events, from dances to sports competitions. In a word, they did the kind of social organizing young people have always enjoyed. Thus, the Seinendan were actually able to get some genuinely enthusiastic participation from their members, and several even organized themselves into volunteer labor battalions to help with the construction of public works organized by the Nanyocho, or with relief after natural disasters. All of these activities were suffused with imperial spirit, of course. For example, on the Marshall Islands, the Seinendan regularly sang a tune called Taiheyo Koshinkyoku, or the March of the Pacific, which was essentially a fight song for the Imperial Japanese Navy. The lyrics are, if you're wondering, If you're a seafarer, if you're a man, your day has come to sail the Japan current bravely together over the Pacific of your yearning with a thrill that makes your blood boil. This is getting a bit ahead of ourselves, but it shouldn't come as much of a surprise that when World War II came, it was pretty much only Seinendan members that volunteered for the Teishintai, volunteer units of Micronesian auxiliaries to support the war effort. And those volunteers would find themselves disillusioned pretty quickly. We'll get into it next week. In pretty much every respect, Japanese social policy in Micronesia was a mile wide and an inch deep. Even in areas where the Nanyocho brought what were on the surface an unambiguous benefit to the population, such as expanding access to medical care, the results were mixed at best. For example, the Nanyocho did expand hospital access and bring doctors to the region, and on paper Micronesians had equal access to them. But these public services were always profoundly underfunded. For example, in 1935, the total budget in the Nanyocho for all public services, including medicine, 
was slightly under 170,000 yen. For comparison, the government subsidy just for the shipping industry was 665,000 yen. Economic exploitation always came first, and even when it didn't, the sheer number of immigrants into the region meant that Micronesians had a hard time getting access to the benefits of civilization in the form of healthcare. There just wasn't enough capacity. I think it is fair to say that, in summary, the only thing the bureaucrats of the Nanyocho really cared about was economic exploitation. The welfare of Micronesians came second, if at all. That reality is apparent in pretty much every policy we've looked at from an education system intended to turn Micronesians into useful second-class laborers in their own homeland, or even third-class under the Koreans and Okinawans, to immigration and land policies displacing people from their own homes. These policies would, in turn, pay their dividends once Micronesia found itself at the forefront of war with the United States, and the carefully constructed edifice of Japanese rule in the area collapsed in just a few short years. But we'll get to that next week. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. This show is a part of the Facing Backward podcast network. You can find out more about this show and our other shows at facingbackward.com and support the network at patreon.com facingbackward. Special thanks to our patrons who've donated at the shout-out tier, Jan Leonard, Stephen Elkins, Martin Oliveira, Clark Canning, Ian Kellett, Matt Haynes, Jackie Frostocker, Monkey Sack, Alayla McCulloch, Karen Murphy, Peter Wales, Robert Prine, William, Arno, Jonas Brandis, Nicholas Kroll, Jerry Spinrad, Jared Stevens, Jeffrey Dwork, Stefan Hrushka, Joshua Kane, Robbie and Cat, Jacob Key, Aaron Finkbeiner, a house is a perfectly cromulent mascot, and the fish I catch are Rhodes Scholars compared to Samuel Alito, schmuck. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for the fourth and final part of this series. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.